of Psalm 103. I'll be reading Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to their children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O oh, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul. Father, thank you for the amazingly varied ways that you proclaim to us the existence of God, the salvation that you offer us, the glories of Christ. Lord, help us to bless our souls by blessing you. Wake up our souls, Lord, to bless you by remembering all the amazing things that you do for us, have done for us, and will do for us, particularly in your saving work through the cross of Christ and all to the glory of your name. And now, Lord, help me to speak in a way, Lord, that draws people to remember the great God that we serve and who offers to us eternal life in your presence. Amen. Amen. So, Psalm 103. I've titled this message, Is There Anything That God Does That Does Not Deserve God's Praise? And this psalm, like all psalms, is essentially a poem. It's supposed to be educating our mind, but also doing something special in our heart, creating, hopefully, a song in our heart. Some psalms are mostly for encouraging us, such as hope in God. 
Others help us to express regret and guilt because we've sinned. Psalms like, create in me a clean heart, O God. And others are for declaring the glory of God, such as the heavens declare the glory of God. And others are imprecatory, saying things like, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's in the Psalms. We're not going to go anywhere near that one today. But Psalm 103 is one of those that never ask God for anything. It's just thanksgiving and praise. So, because it's poetry, there's a bit of a challenge to divide it into different sections. But this psalm, after David preaches to himself and begs his soul to bless God, can be looked at in three separate ways of God dealing with us. Number one, God's merciful acts and forgiveness to those who are his. Secondly, God's requirements for how to live to ensure we are the recipients of his merciful acts and forgiveness. And thirdly, God's ability to ensure that these things are all true without any doubt whatsoever. But first, before we think about these three ways of God dealing with us, David begins by preaching to himself to have his soul bless God. He starts out and says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now we know that God does not need anything. He does not need to have us bless him since he is fully self-sufficient, sustaining, and perfectly happy without us. Obviously, he's pleased with our blessing him, but a main point of David before he begins to declare God's amazing acts as he's going to do throughout this psalm is to bless his own soul by having his soul bless God. And blessing God, if we think about it, is essentially praising God, or at least it's the main thing. So if we want to bless our soul, we need to bless and praise the Lord. Seems simple enough. And the most obvious way, I suppose, is to enter into what we just finished doing. Corporate worship, praising God. But realistically, when we start to worship, our lips are way ahead of our heart. I think we'll all agree. Praising him with our lips, but our hearts far from him. So David is preaching to his soul, and we should preach to ourselves to bless the Lord, as David says, with all that is within me. The Spirit of God is in us who believe so that we can draw near to him. And isn't that the main reason that God has given us voices? So that we can sing? If we can all call it that. Primarily so we can bless him with song. And that's why I'm so thankful about this church, because we are singing about Christ, about God and his attributes, not about us. And that blesses our souls. Just as important as hearing the word priest here and listening and hearing the same thing about Christ. So that my soul wants to praise him and say, bless the Lord. And that's what David says. He says, come on, soul, bless the Lord. 
So David starts to go on in blessing the Lord for all these things which follow. Firstly, God's merciful acts and forgiveness to those who are his. David says, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Does it mean that God heals all our physical infirmities? Ask around this church, and you probably conclude, well, he does sometimes, but he sure can take his time. Or maybe not at all. And eventually, obviously, when we grow old enough, our physical bodies are certainly never healed. But by forgiving our iniquity, he heals our greatest disease, our soul disease, our diseased, wretched, sinful souls. Has he done that for you? Have you been to the doctor, the great physician? He did that for me, and my soul disease was so advanced that gangrene had set in. Seems like I almost didn't make it, but I did, by God's grace and mercy. David goes on, who redeems your life from the pit. David says in Psalm 18, he's talking about his enemies, but I think if we... Listen, we'll see that it sounds awfully familiar as it applies to us, the enemy of our souls, and what God has done for us who believe. David says there, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. So if we realize the depth of our sin and light of God's holiness, we realize whether, as Paul says, he was the chief of all sinners or we're just pretty good people, we all are in need of being taken out of the pit, the pit of our sin and, by extension, the pit of hell. This is a God who sits enthroned in indescribable, awesome, beautiful heaven, wearing his royal garb, but he will take it off. And he did take it off. As Paul says of Christ, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to come to us and die that bloody death, taking the penalty for our sin. If we believe that. This is the God who's 100% fully, absolutely committed to you returning home if you're his. Remember what Jesus said in his parable about the prodigal son when he was pointing to God the Father's love for his children. Jesus said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father waiting day after day, looking at the horizon for a glimpse of his child. If not today, then surely tomorrow he'll come. That's the heart of God towards his children, waiting for us to come out of the pit to him. So the question here is, has God redeemed you from your pit? David goes on, crowning you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfying you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. 
In Psalm 102, right before this one, the psalmist is heavily distressed and in serious need, and he says, I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. But in this psalm, David is blessing and praising God and speaking of his goodness, and so he feels like a soaring eagle. So there are times to feel owl-like, but today we're trying to do some eagle soaring. Then David invokes Moses and the people of Israel, and he says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. God's rescuing of the Israelites from Egypt was so important that God keeps referring to it over and over and over again to remind the Israelites of God's justice and mercy on behalf of the oppressed. Like Matthew said about Jesus, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. God uses the fact that he brought the Israelites up out of Egypt almost a hundred times throughout the Old Testament to remind of his kindness to him, his steadfast love. Really to get their attention and say, if I can do that to save the oppressed, surely I can be trusted in all things outside of the creation count and the flood. It is one of God's greatest displays of power and redemption in the Old Testament. But he must continually remind us because we forget. There are only two modern ordinances prescribed for us, baptism and communion. And communion is at its core, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because we forget. We can look at the Israelites in the desert and say, how could they be so dense in the head that they would see those mighty acts and ignore him and stop trusting him? Could it be because we are distracted by the seen rather than the unseen, which Paul says is eternal? Mary and Martha and Jesus at their home for a meal. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. The Lord said, you are worried about, set about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, the unseen. So because of our constant distraction, with the scene, the Lord must constantly remind us to remember. God saying, I am trustworthy. Remember, remember, remember all that I have done and promised. David continues. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So here he speaks of his mercy, grace, and love, and that he is slow to anger. And I don't know about you, but I think we should be very grateful that God is slow to anger. Paul thinks so too. He says in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience. 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's perfect patience with us. The NIV translated God's unlimited patience, which is not really correct. But it sure seemed like he has been that way with me and continues to be that way. How does Paul start out describing God's love in the love chapter of 1 Corinthians? Recall what he says when he starts, love is patient. This exact saying of God saying he is slow to anger is scattered three times throughout the Psalms to remind us. So let's thank God for his patience. And don't worry because I'm going to get to the part where we're not presuming on God's patience. Okay? David goes on. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What can we say here? But thank God that he gives us the exact discipline we need and does not pay us back according to the hugeness of our sin. He is not like us parents who discipline incorrectly since God knows the end from the beginning. He is outside of time. He knows when he disciplines exactly what the result will be. We don't know that. So we overdo it or underdo it. But God is always perfect in what he disciplines. And like James says, a small rudder can turn a mighty ship. So God knows how to put us back on course. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here God is appealing to the creation to underscore the extent of his love and forgiveness. As high as the heavens are above the earth. In our family, there is a nearly 50-year-old, much-coveted framed picture taken from outer space showing two space capsules in a docking maneuver with the blazing blue earth and the white clouds below it. And I keep it right next to my desk on the wall. Neil Armstrong and the other astronaut, who was a family friend who took the picture from his capsule, they're practicing their docking maneuvers for what was then a future trip for Armstrong to the moon. And before I was a Christian, I used to look at those capsules and be amazed. Hundreds of thousands of miles an hour they're going, and they come together like a feather and touch each other and come together. But after I became a Christian, I would look at that picture, and I totally changed what I was looking at. And I used to stare at the picture and think of this verse 11 here in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And I couldn't believe that God would forgive my sin to that extent. As far as east is from the west, that he loves me that much. It's infinite. The heavens forever. The east from the west. There's no end to it. And so I went out and I had that engraved on the bottom of the picture. This very verse, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his forgiveness. 
But, as it says here, it is only for those who fear him. Speaking of creation and how it points to God's uh, character and qualities is extremely important. And it's easy for us who live in this concrete jungle to lose touch with the amazing extent of God's creation. But how important is it? Well, in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear how important it is even to one's eternal salvation. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That's it. Plain and simple. No excuses when standing before God on Judgment Day. There it is, right in front of us. God's phenomenal creation, as we see it, as we experience it, is all, Paul says, that one should need to, as he says, know God, honor God, and yet would suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I recently had the opportunity to experience God's unpaved, if you will, creation going up to the mountains. And there was this one gal there who kept hooting and hollering about all that God-created glory. And it was such a blessing because it's so easy for us to say, ho-hum, been there, seen that. But it is an amazing testimony to his power. Look at the universe. Sergio touched on this last week. Not too many facts. But everything in the universe is exactly as it needs to be. Tilt of the earth is perfect. The distance to the sun, exact. The moon over here, perfect. Any of it slightly off, we burn up. We freeze to death. The observable universe is so huge. I'm just going to give you one fact. It's so huge. If you were to get on the freeway and drive at freeway speeds all day long, every day, it would take you 959 quadrillion years to drive across it. If Pastor Joe is driving, you get there sooner. <laughs> David goes on. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Dust we are because life breathed dust into us. God breathed dust into us in the beginning, in the creation account. And I think this is very important in today's world to think about our dustness, the vapor of our life. Because there is this unspeakable unspoken assumption among so many of us that we're going to live a long life. Everybody lives a long life today. That's what everybody assumes if you ask them what's in their heart because of modern medicine and everything else. But we are dust. We are vapors. And there is, in the scriptures, some poetry about dustness that is so 
beautiful. I'm no poet, but it is, I'm sure, if not the most beautiful one of them in the world. So I'll read it, seven verses about our vapor, the dustness of our lives. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him, that's God, before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In the second part, God's requirements for how to live to ensure we are all the recipients of his merciful acts and forgiveness. David goes on. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more, or remembers it no more. Perhaps this verse sounds familiar. There's a couple other times in James and 1 Peter, something similar. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. And all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. But here in this Psalm 103, there are some very interesting words. Its place remembers it no more. And I think this is a very important point that we should remember and take to heart. Sergio touched on this idea last week. Its place remembers it no more. As he quoted from Ecclesiastes from the beginning, it says, no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And from Genesis, we know that the world just keeps on going and going and going without regard for the vapor of our life because God promises while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So even these trees outside here, the bushes, 
God keeps them going and going, and you and I will be young and then old, and we'll be gone, and they'll still be growing. Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So especially in the current culture where famousness is so exalted, this verse, its place remembers it no more. It's a sobering reminder that no one is going to remember famous people. Some who are famous because they are famous. Go to the store, used to go, there'd be a couple down here, now it's the whole front of it. All these people. Famous. They are indeed the modern world's idols. But what you'll notice as you grow older is how mentioning someone who used to be famous gets a blank stare from young people. Who's that? So I have here in my hand a picture of Dave, my dad, currently age 86. This picture was taken in 1929 right here on the sand at Hermosa Beach. He's age two. He's sitting in the sand next to his great-grandmother who's in a rocking chair on the beach. I don't know the woman's favorite food or her husband's name or when she was born or when she died because I don't even know her first name. She is long forgotten. Its place remembers it no more. But there is one person who will remember everything, who will forget nothing. Your every tiny kindness in his name will forever be remembered. As Jesus declares in Matthew, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But Jesus also says in Matthew, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. And Paul reminds us in Romans, so then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. David continues, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So in these two verses right here, we have a miniature recitation of the gospel. Sort of like our sins in his body on the tree, like Peter says, the fear of God, his offering of a covenant to remove that fear, and then a requirement to do his commandments. But it's important to note here that doing his commandments is not the first thing we need. That does not save us, being a commandment doer. Paul concludes towards the beginning of Romans that we are all unrighteous. And he goes on to a long list of failures as humans, us. Things like worthless, 
No one good, deceitful, poisonous, like vipers. Then he ends that, summing it all up, the humankind's problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If there is no fear of God and there's no concern that we have offended him, that he even exists, then why would anybody concern himself with this covenant that he offers? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the psalmist. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is the way Proverbs starts off. There are many ways to understand the fear of God, reverence, but certainly his power to do all things is paramount. This is the all-powerful God about whom the psalmist says, He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. But this is the same God who says, Jesus says in Matthew regarding Jerusalem, Oh, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. That's God's desire of gathering his children and caring for us with the tenderness like a mother hen. But this all-powerful God also says to Moses, who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? And yet, this is the same God who gives us puppies and kittens and mama ducks with their little baby ducks. Have you ever seen that walking behind them? She's helping them along, their little children. Why all this? Well, partly at least it's a picture of God. As Paul says in Romans, Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. It is nicely captured in one of our favorite songs. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved." Has that happened to you? If you have not truly become a follower of Christ, and as Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, then somewhere along the line, the true fear of God must come upon you, me, us. And if that does happen to you, let's hope we can say, oh, happy day, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. The second part of this triad, David says it's God's steadfast love to those who keep his covenant, his new covenant. As Jesus said at the Last Supper, the new covenant in my blood, the blood of Christ shed for you on that day, on that cross, outside those walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. His brutal death at the hands of guilty men 
but foreordained by God to pour out the penalty for my sin and your sin on his son, your sins in his body. Do you believe that? That surely was a happy day, a good day, but not for you. Unless you repent, believe, trust, and prepare to follow him so that he truly may wash your sins away. And this last of the three, after fear God, keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. So if the fear of God is in you, and you are of those who keep his covenant, then you will surely remember to do his commandments, keep his commandments. Part of the new covenant for true believers is that God sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, so we want to do his commandments. John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. These commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You will note this is the last thing the psalmist says before turning towards the end of the psalm, keep his commandments. But we know that keeping his commandments is last, not first, since people are not saved by keeping his commandments. And yet, Psalm 119 is just full of this stuff. To see what it should be like for us who are born again. Just one nugget. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now I just want to say a few personal remarks primarily to the young people here today, but to everybody. I became a Christian when I was 35 years old. Was there a reason God waited until I was 35 year old, years old to put an end to my willful rebellion against him and call me out of my sin and darkness? To, as David says here, to keep his commandments whatever the reasons were I know one reason is certain so I can stand up here today and beseech you to beg you please be faithful to God's commandments for your purity your future for your life you have the benefit of mine having been there done that so you can save yourself the trouble. No need for you to go there. You see, I have always been troubled by Paul's words from Titus. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Why does this trouble me? Because so many places I go and so many things I do, I am reminded of my past sin. I remember when I was in rebellion here. I remember when I sinned over there. From Santa Barbara to San Diego, 
we accumulate a lot over that many years, both big and small, and they really do add up. And I look at others, and I know their history. They're much better obedience to God's commands. And they're not burdened by that past. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted, their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Even though my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, my conscience is corrupted. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let what I'm going to read be a metaphor for your life, these few verses from Proverbs 7. Please have the obedience that comes from faith. Do not let these verses be a metaphor for your life. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Do not stray into her paths. Her house is the way to the grave, going down to the chambers of death. Jesus says if we are his disciples, we must bear fruit. We must, as David says here, remember to do his commandments. So let's not us be phony fruit trees. Don't worry about the world's current concern at present about phony scandals. Let's worry about being a phony fruit tree, about saying, sure, I fear God. Yes, I know his covenant. But then there is no bearing fruit, no doing his commandments. David says, fear God, keep his covenant, and do his commandments. Finally, God's ability to ensure that these things are all true without any doubt whatsoever. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is an anchor for everything that's come before. All these benefits, all these descriptions of God, you can count on because of God's control and providence. They are certain, as David reminds us, because his throne is in heaven. He's in sovereign and control of all things. No one can undo or thwart or stop any of what has been said about God up to this point. It's not possible. And the ending verses referring back to the beginning. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Does this leave anyone or anything out of blessing the Lord, his angels, his heavenly hosts, 
and even all the works in his dominion, all of his creation. Like this from Isaiah, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Or from the psalmist, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so now, as David says, come on, soul, bless the Lord. Let's do that now. Let's bless the Lord with our soul, shall we? <laughs> Father, thank you for reminding us again.